Well, author Ossie Guinness writes um, about the chairman of the United States Federal Reserve System back in the 70s, who was also the ambassador to Germany. His name was Arthur Burns. Arthur Burns was also Jewish, and when he showed up and started attending an informal White House group of Christians who gathered for fellowship and prayer, they weren't exactly sure what to do with Arthur. Um, so every week when different people took turns in closing prayer at their gathering, they just skipped Arthur and didn't, didn't give him a chance to pray until a newcomer came led the group, was not aware of Arthur's unique situation, and he asked him to close in prayer. So all the old-timers are kind of glancing around at each other. They're not sure what's going to go on with this. And without missing a beat, Burns reached out, held hands with the others in the circle, and this is the prayer that he prayed. Lord, I pray that you would bring Jews to know Jesus Christ. I pray that you would bring Muslims to know Jesus Christ. And finally, Lord, I pray that you would bring Christians to know Jesus Christ. Amen. And it, it may be that we need that prayer more than we know. Um, French philosopher Voltaire said centuries ago, if God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. And so today we're going to think about God in a, in a way that we don't normally think about him. We don't normally sing about this attribute, these attributes of God or um, encourage each other with these attributes of God. But today in Joshua 10 through 12, we're going to look at a side of God that is very, very different than us. And so uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 10, and I'll, I'll pray for our time there. Bow with me, please. Lord, have mercy upon us now and give us um, eyes to see you, um, faith to believe you and a willingness to trust that you are our good father, though you be our judge um, and our warrior at the same time. This we ask in Christ's great name. Amen. Okay, we are in Joshua chapter 10. Israel has come into the Holy Land, and now they're beginning to dispossess the peoples who have lived in the land. That is a military um, operation. And uh, we saw in the early parts last week of chapter 10 that they uh, were deceived into brokering a covenant of peace with a people called the Gibeonites who live in the land. And uh, Gibeon, as a result, the other people in the land turned on Gibeon, attacked her. They called out to Israel for help. And Israel now goes to the aid of one of the peoples in Canaan, the Gibeonites. And we left our story about verse 8. It says, the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And in an extraordinary way now, God is fighting with his people, Israel, on behalf of the Gibeonites. In fact, in a miraculous way, verse 11, we saw as they fled before Israel, these kings were going down the ascent of Beth Horon. The Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones. And the sons of Israel killed with the sword. And so God miraculously intervenes in this battle with Israel to rescue the Gibeonites. And these hailstones come down, destroy these five kings' armies who'd been opposing them. But he does something perhaps even more extraordinary than hailstones in the verses that follow. Look at verse 12 with me. 
At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Joshua? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. And Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So what happened here? Okay, this is stunning, isn't it? It's absolutely crazy. The Lord obeyed the voice of a man. Now, is that not what you were thinking about? Were you thinking about something else that was crazy in the passage? Because that's what the emphasis of the writer is. It's not on whatever happened with the sun and the moon, but that Yahweh obeyed the voice of a man. That's the thing that he is really shocked about here. It is a really, there are lots of answered prayers in the Bible. Um, this is one of them, but the language here is that of God literally obeying a man. And that only happens maybe three times in the whole Old Testament. This is a remarkable, remarkable act of mercy on God's part. But we do need to at least address what was going on with the sun and the moon. And really, um, you've got two options, two big options. And uh, let me give you a caution for each of those options because I don't know what was going on with the sun and the moon. I'll just try to summarize your options here. First, there was some kind of cosmological miracle happening. God actually could have stopped the rotation of the earth and prolonged the day. Or that miracle might have been, some have suggested maybe there were some meteorites, a shower that caused the light to refract when it normally would have been dark. Um, other people noticed that the language there might actually be that God darkened the sun rather than extended it, and so there might be an eclipse that's going on here. There's all kinds of options. Uh, might have been a bad omen because the sun and the moon might have been visible in the daytime, which is a very rare occurrence. That might have been a bad omen for the Canaanites and struck fear into them. So lots of options about some kind of cosmological miracle that could have happened here. Um, the caution that I will give you with that is NASA has not done research and found a missing day in history that explains this. Okay, you're going to find that all over the internet. That is what we call an urban legend. Never happened. NASA does not do that kind of research. They did not find a missing 24-hour period in history. So don't use that when you talk with your friends about what's going on in this particular situation. Another caution I'll give you, uh, Dr. Lassiter told me one beforehand that one of his theology students suggested to him that this was really daylight savings time. No. <laughs> No, 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 not daylight savings time. So, so that's one group of options. The other option is that if you notice in your Bible, this is probably a set apart different. It doesn't look like prose. It looks like poetry in your Bibles because the language here is poetic. And a lot of times that involves the figurative use of words and description. And um, so 
For instance, very similar language is used in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, in verse 11 and 12. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. Um, Generally understood there not to be literal. This is figurative language. And it's very similar to what we have going on here. So it might have been, this is figurative language that implies the fullness of what God granted Israel to succeed in that day. All, it's as though the sun stood still and the day was lengthened, so comprehensive was their victory. And that's a possibility. Now, if you are inclined to think about this figuratively, let me give you a caution. It comes from um, commentator David Howard. He says, the suggestion of a figurative interpretation is not a denial that God could perform such a miracle. And one does not need to accept the figurative view because of any concern over scientific problems. God rules over all natural laws and can do whatever he chooses to do. The figurative view is suggested because of the literary features in the passage, not because of any concern over God's sovereignty over nature. So God is more than able to have done to stop the rotation of the earth. If we choose to think that it's a literary expression here, it's because of the language that's used here, not because of any limitation on our great God. So anyway, regardless of how you think about that, obviously God is fighting for Israel here to rescue the Gibeonites. And the stunning thing is, this is in obedience to Joshua's prayer. And just how merciful is God in all that. So... What happens in the verses that follows is these five kings who were attacking Gibeon, whom Israel routed, they meet their final end. And it starts down in verse 24. They they brought those kings out who had been hiding in a cave to Joshua. Joshua summoned all the men of Israel, said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded. And they took down from the trees, took them down from the trees, and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cage, which remain to this very day. So, this is pretty graphic, right? They step on their necks, they kill the kings, and then they hang them from trees as a display uh, throughout the remainder of the day for all Israel to see. It, it kind of smacks of those American soldiers being dragged through the streets of Mogadishu, if you remember that, that years ago. It was so, so troubling. Um, What is going on here? And again, Professor Robert Hubbard helps. He says, though inhumane to modern readers, this gesture was typical of ancient warfare. The public humiliation of defeated enemies probably served the the propaganda purposes of the victors to discourage the attacks of other enemies and to inspire courage in their own troops. Theologically, it attests the victory of Yahweh the warrior over his present and future enemies. But what happens next may be even more troubling to us as we read it. Because from here on, 
we move through an extensive catalog of Israel's military victories. The remainder of chapter 10 logs a campaign through the south of Canaan, um, city by city by city. And it sounds a lot like this. Here's a sample of it. Verse 34, Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day as he had done to Lachish. And then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron. And they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword. And its king and its towns and every person in it. He left nothing remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. So City by city by city, it continues throughout the rest of chapter 10. Um, this, this strong and somewhat troubling language is used. They laid siege to the city. They struck it with the edge of the sword. They devoted every person to destruction. No one remained. Now, if you look on into chapter 11, same deal. A northern campaign, the exact same kind of troubling catalog with a similar summary of the northern campaign until you get down to verse 18 of chapter 11. And then we read, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that all should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. So on top of all this violence, now you've got this insight that the Lord is hardening their hearts and that's why they're fighting against Israel. So we've added trouble upon trouble almost as we read this. And then verse 23, at last, Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Okay, at last. But not yet. Because if you read chapter 12, if two chapters of cataloging, cataloging brutal military campaigns wasn't enough... Chapter 12 gives us a recap, and it starts out in the first six verses. It tells about Moses' two military victories before they crossed the Jordan, and then the rest of the chapter is just this list of cities that were conquered by Israel and their king. Um, a sample from verse 9, the king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. One king after another king after another king. 31 kings are listed here that were conquered and destroyed by Israel under Joshua's leadership. So, this is our passage. Five kings killed, hung on trees, on display um, outside the city. Military campaign throughout the south from city to city. Everyone is destroyed and put to the sword. Military campaign to the north, same deal. From city to city, everyone is um, put to the sword there. And then we've got this recap of Joshua's military victories, listing 31 kings. Um, so what, what do we make of this? What do we do with three chapters of violence in the, uh, 
in the midst of the book of Joshua like this. I mean, this reads like band of brothers, right? They're going from one battle to the next battle to the next battle, and it's brutal what's going on here. Um, So what I would like to do is draw what I think are four kind of takeaway lessons that I hope help us think about this um, kind of in total. So first takeaway, and we've touched on this already in the book of Joshua. First thing is, keep in mind, there are mitigating factors to this warfare that's going on here. Mitigating factors that take this out of the realm of genocide or ethnic cleansing or of what we see done today by someone like Hitler or in a place like Rwanda. There are things that make this quite different from that. Um, There's a book that if you're interested in reading a really accessible read on this subject, it's called The Skeletons in God's Closet by Joshua Ryan Butler. And part of the book looks at this. And so if you just wanted to read more and you didn't want to have to know, uh, read it in Hebrew, then this might be a good read uh, for you. And I'll quote from it a bit as we walk through these mitigating factors. For instance, the first mitigating factor um, we pick out from chapter 10, Verse 20, where it says, When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities. Okay? We talked about this a, a week or two ago. These are fortified cities, more like forts than like cities. Here's Joshua Butler's description. The picture is one of Joshua's armies attacking military strongholds, knocking out generals, putting their soldiers to flight, not invading cities, assassinating presidents, and slaughtering civilians. Israel is taking on Napoleon and his militias, not Paris and her masses. When the story says no survivors were left in a city, it is simply stating the obvious. The fort has been taken over, and all its defenders have either fled or been killed. So, we need to keep that in mind. Here's a second mitigating factor. Um, It is common in ancient Near Eastern cultures for the language of hyperbole to be used in the language of war. Street language, that's exaggeration. And again, you, you see this a little bit in verse 20 that we looked at. Look at it with me again here. It says, when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out. And when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the four or five cities. So on the one hand, he says, we wiped them out. But then he says, there was a remnant that remained. And that wiped out is this kind of hyperbolic, exaggerated language. Butler says, the Old Testament makes it clear that it's using ancient trash talk here. Exaggerated war rhetoric. It was something like sports trash talk today. He says, when a basketball team beats their opponents, you expect to hear them say things in the locker room like, we wasted them, wiped the floor with them, they had nothing on us, couldn't get a thing past us, we annihilated them. If you just dropped in on this post-game locker room talk, you would think the score was 120 to nothing. But when you ask your friend on the team what the actual score was, and he replies, 120 to 105, you realize that it was still a decisive victory, but not anywhere as dra- near as drastic as the rhetoric alone would lead you to believe. The basketball team is not telling lies in the locker room. They simply expect you to understand this is trash talk, an exaggerating way of speaking. Similarly, in the ancient Middle East, 
This was the way people commonly talked about war. This exaggerated war rhetoric was universally common. So we need to keep that in mind as well. A third mitigating factor. Israel's holy war is different than the other kind of holy wars that went on in the ancient, ancient Near East. In the sense that this is not a stronger military power taking on weaker military powers. Again, listen to Butler. He says, Israel does not have machine guns. They are outrageously outgunned and outmanned. It is not like there was a stockpile of AK-47s waiting for them in the wilderness after they left Egypt. Israel has whatever they've been able to muddle together wandering through the desert for the last 40 years. Canaan, in contrast, has weapons, the most advanced weaponry of the day. Their chariots can quickly take out Israel's foot shoulders or foot soldiers, rather. Their horses can easily knock down Israel's ground fighters. He says, Israel is like a lone kindergartner taking on the high school senior class with a wiffle bat. Canaan also has defenses, heavily fortified military outposts like Jericho with high walls, protective rivers, top-of-the-line ramparts. Israel has a small wooden box they build in the desert that carries God's protective presence with them. Israel is the dramatic, laughable underdog. If the analogy is the NFL, this is not a lower-ranked team going up against a higher-ranked team and hoping for an upset. This is your local grade school team going up against the national Super Bowl champions. Mainstream Holy War's motto, he says, is, we will fight for God. But Israel turns this motto on its head and shouts instead, God will fight for us. So these and other factors mitigate this war of Israel's against Canaan and remove it really from categories like genocide or ethnic cleansing. It's very different from Hitler or what went in in Rwanda. And there are other factors in that category as well. So there are mitigating factors. But let me be as clear as I can about this second takeaway from this. Okay. This is real judgment taking place on the Canaanites. This is war. Battles are being fought. Soldiers are dying. Cities are being burned to the ground. Kings' bodies are hung from the trees. This is real judgment on display from a holy, holy, holy God. Now, there have been some recent attempts to shift the blame for the violence in passages like this from God to Moses. They say Moses misunderstood God, and he misspoke when he said things like this. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. So the claim is that this is Moses being hawkish, not God being judge. But when you look throughout Scripture, I mean, you just casually read the Old Testament. This is an integral part of who God is, 
a just judge. Let me give you some examples from the book of Exodus, chapter 12. God himself says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Psalm chapter 9, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Psalm 75, it is God who executes judgment. A little farther down it says, all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. This is not the Old Testament God, um, unlike the New Testament. The New Testament teaches the same kinds of things about our God. Romans 2, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Hebrews chapter 10, we know him who said, and that is the Lord, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. It's not even just an Old Testament and a New Testament thing. It is a future thing. God is going to judge the world. Revelation talks about it. He says, I saw a great white throne, him who was seated on it. From his present earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So God is shown to be a judge in the Old Testament and a judge in the New Testament, and he will judge the earth, every one of us, in the future. Here in Joshua, God is acting as a just judge, passing sentence upon the Canaanites for their dark and evil practices and that leads us to the second or really the third excuse me takeaway from all of this real evil is being judged here and John Piper explains how this has unfolded throughout time and he says to understand what was happening when the people of Israel stormed the cities of Canaan and slaughtered their inhabitants we need to go back about 500 years in Genesis 15 the Lord's, this is really kind of interesting if you like geography. Okay. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they're going to go and be taken captive in Egypt. And will be servants there. And they will be afflicted there in Egypt for 400 years. Okay. So they're going to leave where Abram is, which is the land of Canaan, and go to Egypt for 400 years. Drop down a couple verses to verse 16. It says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So they will come back um, when the iniquity of the Amorites, the Canaanites, is not yet complete. Piper explains, the return of Israel to the promised land from Egypt 
would correspond with the completion of the iniquity of the Amorites. This is the meaning of the slaughter of the peoples of Canaan. God timed the arrival of his judgment with the fullness of the sin to be judged, not before. God did not jump the gun. So real evil is being judged. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9. Um, let me skip down to about verse 4. He's saying, when you enter the land, the promised land, in verse 4, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust out the people before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess the land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you that he may confirm the word the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So because of their wickedness, they are being driven out of the land. So when our passage uses that troubling language that God is hardening their hearts, it is part of his judgment upon the evil of the Canaanite culture, I think. And it's like there's a time limit on it. And God has let it go for 400 years. But now their iniquity is full and he cannot overlook it anymore. And he hardens their heart and brings judgment uh, finally upon them. So God has been patient for more than 400 years. But the evil among the Canaanites is such that he must act. Okay? And the evil among the Canaanites is such that I cannot Read it to you in church. I'm going to read you some excerpts um, that are edited for this reading. Professor Clay Jones writes of the gods that were worshipped in Canaan. So this is describing Canaanite gods. The god El is described in one ancient text as a drunkard splashing in his excrement and his urine after a banquet. That's their god, their chief god. El, considered the father of gods, had 70 children by Asherah, and from that union came Baal, another god, and his sister Anat, with whom Baal had sexual relations. After Baal reported to his father El that Asherah had tried to seduce him, El encouraged Baal to have sex with her to humiliate her, which Baal did, and Baal then had also had a consort with his first daughter, Pidre. So their gods are incestuous and immoral. Their gods are. Professor Jones continues, he says, Remember that Sodom was a Canaanite city, and after it was destroyed for its wickedness, the next thing we read is that Lot's daughters get Lot drunk and have sex with him. Lot and his daughters imitate the sexual practices of Canaanite culture, and the Canaanites, not accidentally, ape their deities. Canaanite religion was a fertility religion, and one of their goddesses, known as the Queen of Heaven, became the woman among the gods, patron of eroticism and sensuality, of conjugal love as well as adultery, of brides and prostitutes, transvestites, and pederasts. Okay. Leviticus 18 verse 21 says, Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. Molech was a Canaanite underworld deity represented as an upright bullheaded idol with human body in whose belly was a fire stoked and in whose outstretched arms a child was placed that would then be burned to death because the Canaanites would offer their children by one account up to age four to be burned to death to the god Moloch. These are dark 
and evil practices. And we want evil to be judged. Right? On September 2nd in 1990, there was a murder in New York City that really horrified the nation at that time. There was a, a family from Provo, Utah, the Watkins, um, uh, mom and a dad and their two um, barely adult sons, it says in the article. Um, and they had gone there to watch the U.S. Open in New York City. But while they were on the subway, uh, on the platform, waiting to get to Flushing Meadows, they were assaulted by a band of four teams, teens. And when uh, one of the sons tried to defend his mom, who was being kicked in the face, um, he was killed. And they were um, brought to court. And the judge, Edwin Torres, sentenced all four attackers to life without parole, which was the toughest sentence possible in New York. At that time, and in doing so, he wrote this statement that says, A band of marauders can surround, pounce upon, and kill a boy in front of his parents, and then stride up the block to Roseland and dance until 4 a.m. as if they had stepped on an insect. He said, These acts were a visitation that the devil himself would hesitate to conjure up. That cannot go unpunished. And so, author Fleming Rutledge says, it makes many people queasy nowadays to talk about the wrath of God. But there can be no turning away from this prominent biblical theme. If we're resistant to the idea of the wrath of God, we might pause to reflect the next time we are outraged about something, something much smaller than a murder, but still we think worthy of our anger. Maybe about our property values being threatened, or our children's educational opportunities being limited, or our tax breaks being eliminated. All of us are capable of anger about something, God's anger, she says, however, is pure. The wrath of God is not an emotion that flares up from time to time as though God has temper tantrums. It is a way of describing his absolute enmity against all wrong and his coming to set matters right. God is a just judge, and he will judge evil. And at this point in time, um, it's, it's tempting for us to think, well, whew, thank God I'm not a Canaanite, Right? I've, I'm, I'm a pretty good person by comparison. I'm not perfect, but I'm no sleazy Canaanite, and I'm definitely no subway murdering thug. Okay. And at that point, I think it's, we, we need to realize and remember what Jesus said about these matters. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be brought to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. A couple of verses later, he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if our God is a just judge, and Jesus says, these are the standards by which we will be judged. We're not as safe from the wrath and judgment of God as we may have thought. If these are the standards, then we need outside help. We need someone to pay the penalty of our sin for us. We need a savior. We need Jesus and that's what Isaiah said about Jesus long before he came. That's what Isaiah said that was so beautiful. He said, surely the Messiah has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, 
smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that takes us towards one last takeaway from these three really violent chapters. And and that would be God is fighting for his people here. He is a warrior fighting for his people in the face of great evil that would that would drag them away from him. In chapter 8, that battle with A, we saw it. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Take your fighting men with you and rise up and go to A and see I have given into your hand the king of A and his people, his city, and his land. In our passage in chapter 10, down in verse 8, the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them will stand before you. And in chapter 11, the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. As Joshua Ryan Butler puts it, Israel is not taking on the empire for God. God is taking on the empire for Israel. He's a warrior fighting for his people on their behalf as an expression of his covenant love for them. And because of that, Because God is with them, you heard it over and over again. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Essentially saying, don't be afraid to follow me. Don't be afraid to obey me. I am with you. I am fighting for you. And Joshua is really great at this. He understands that if God is with them, then they can do whatever God asks of them. And so down in chapter 17, he encourages the people. He says, the hill country shall be yours, for though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. And underlying that statement is the idea that God is with you. God is fighting for you. Now, when we say this and we look at this kind of warfare passages, it's important to realize that this was a one-time deal. It happens in the land of Canaan only at this time. It's not sanctioned elsewhere, not in Scripture, and not for us. Professor Hubbard writes that the Bible regards the conquest of Canaan as a one-time only event to achieve a specific purpose, to provide Israel a homeland and God a geographical base from which eventually he would bless the world. He says there is no justification for adopting the conquest as a paradigm for the use of violence as part of spiritual warfare today. It might be tempting, he says, for a local congregation to bomb City Hall when city planners deny its petition for some variance or rezoning, but Joshua in no way justifies the acting out of righteous indignation in violence. He continues and says, to eschew violence is not to deny that there is a spiritual war going on as I write this. Au contraire, there is in fact a war out there and in here too. The war against the Canaanites, another writer says, was simply an earlier phase of the battle that comes to its climax on the cross and its 
It's completion at the final judgment. The object of warfare moves from the Canaanites, who are the object of God's wrath for their sin, to the spiritual powers and principalities, and then finally to the utter destruction of all evil, human, and spiritual. And this is why Paul writes to us in Ephesians 6, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So we are in a battle. Ours is spiritual. When we trust God is for us, we are to engage evil in our day. Okay. We are to oppose evil, not violently and not against people because our battle is not against flesh and blood. Rather, we are for people in love and against the evil that enslaves and harms them. So when you think about that, are you aware of evil around you? Can you think of where you have seen evil in our world? Maybe even in our town. Maybe where you work or the school where you attend or in your home. Maybe even in our church. Maybe in your soul. Are you aware of evil? Frank Hall became very aware of evil in a story that you've heard before on February 27th of 2012 when a 17-year-old named T.J. Lane from Chardon, Ohio burst into his school's cafeteria and started gunning down classmates. Lane shot and killed three students, but if it wasn't for the courage of Coach Frank Hall, many more students could have died that day. The funny thing is, the article says, is that Hall doesn't consider himself to be a courageous hero. He's 6'1", 350-pound football coach, and he admits he has plenty of fears. He hates confrontations. He's afraid of heights, roller coasters, and scary movies. He jumps through the ceiling when kids sneak up on him. On one level, Coach Hall is more of a teddy bear than a fighter. Hall summarizes his coaching code in two sentences. Every kid is someone's pride and joy, or wants to be someone's pride and joy. I keep thinking, how would I want my kid to be treated? And then I treat them that way. But Frank Hall believes that there's one word that defines his life calling, and that's protector. So as the shots rang out on that February morning in the Chardon High School cafeteria, Frank Hall knew what he had to do. Hall, who is a follower of Christ, who says he felt the hand of God throughout the ordeal, responded with courage in the face of danger. And as students cringed under desks, Hall charged at the gunman, his voice booming, Stop! Stop! And T.J. Lane... 17-year-old shooter was thrown off guard by Hall's charge and Lane shot and missed as Hall dove behind a soda machine. When Jen Sprinzel, a 51-year-old secretary, rushed out of the office to follow the mess, he, Hall, um, or Lane pointed his gun in her face and Hall, who has four adopted sons at home, two African-American and two biracial, that he didn't want to leave fatherless. But once again, he rose up and he bellowed, No! And then he charged at Lane, who wheeled and started running. Police finally found Lane on a wooded road, shivering and wearing a t-shirt with the word killer on it. And when they asked him why he'd run away, he said, 
because Coach Hall was chasing me. It's one of the advantages of being 6'1", 350, I guess. But in a later interview, Hall said, I know it sounds crazy, but in all honesty, I really didn't think about anything. I just reacted. And he says, as a society, we cannot lose our outrage when these kinds of tragedies happen. We can't just get to the point where we accept these kinds of things as just part of our lives now. We have to make sure we, as a people, don't accept it. We can't. And so I'm wondering today, if when you think through the presence of evil in your world, if there aren't some people in this room whom God is calling to take a stand against child trafficking, against sexual abuse and violence in our homes, some of which has even crept into the church, against racism that hates people just because of the color of their skin. Who will stand against the pornography that's tempting and tearing marriages apart? Some of you, God is saying, stand, fight the battle. And to you, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So you can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So, in these horribly violent chapters of Joshua, we learn that our God is a judge, a just judge, and he stands against all evil, and he fights for us so that we can stand when we are tempted and when we are pressed by the very evil that is all around us. God is, as we sang earlier, God is a warrior. And he is fighting for us so that we can stand for him. And so symbolically, let me invite you just to stand with me for closing prayer now. Would you stand right where you are? And I'd like to lead us in prayer, and then the team is going to uh, lead us in closing worship. So if you would bow with me. Lord, even this symbol, we stand. We stand even now, just standing by your grace. Our heart beats, our lungs breathe, our muscles work, because you are a merciful and gracious God who loves us. And so too, we lean on you when we think about when we see wrong, when we see evil, swallowing up people that we care about, people that you love, and you call us to stand, give us courage. And Lord, some of us, I suppose all of us in one way or another, have invited evil into our own souls. And we've let it live there. So I pray today that you'd help us to take a stand even there, even at the core of our being, to say no more, God, by your grace, no more. And that we would seek the help and mercy that you've made available through your people to be free. So, Lord, help us. We lean on you to be a good judge and our great warrior and all the time a good, good father who loves us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.